beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I'm at Hot Docs and uh, super exciting. I have two gentlemen from the corporate coup d'etat. So introduce yourselves and what you did for the film. Uh, well, I'm Fred Peabody. I directed the film, The Corporate Coup d'etat. And um, my colleague, Jeff Cohen, was uh, one of the executive producers. Jeff? Yeah, and I was a hands-on executive producer. I didn't just bring in the money. And then <laughs> I think Fred sometimes might have thought I was too hands-on. Yeah. Not at all. I want to start off uh, with the metaphor that you start the movie itself with, uh, which is Camden, New Jersey. And uh, I've been to Camden. I've been to Camden twice. Yeah. And you also gave a nice little shout-out to Urban Promise as part of the thank mm -hmm. you. And I know Bruce Main and Pam and Urban Promise. So just for anybody who doesn't know or is not familiar with Camden, and I can, <laughs> I can understand why, right. it's uh, between New York and Philly and whatever, you're going to those places, not necessarily hanging out in Camden. Yeah. Uh, could you just give us a snapshot of Camden? Well, first of all, uh, what made me want to go to Camden was – uh, learning and reading um, what Chris Hedges, uh, one of the main characters in the film, had written about Camden uh, a few years ago. And, and he, he, he wrote about it as one of the major, what he calls, sacrifice zones, uh, areas that have been basically um, uh, almost destroyed economically and socially uh, by uh, corporate insensitivity, uh, unre un unregulated corporatism, and lack of uh, a conscience, really, uh, which has led to the offshoring of, of jobs to, you know, other countries where they can use virtual slave labor, mm -hmm. really cheap labor, and uh, that, that has left places. Camden once used to be a major manufacturing center. The other place we go to, the other sacrifice zone, is Youngstown, Ohio, which used to be called Steel City, USA. Mm -hmm. And now it also is a scene of economic and social devastation. Um, so it was really, uh, Chris Hedges is a, is a great writer. He's a former correspondent with uh, the New York Times. And uh, since he left the Times, he's written several books. And I highly recommend them to anyone. Uh, he... Uh, he he is the reason that uh that we ended up not only in Camden but we we went there with Chris Hedges mm -hmm. who lives in Princeton New Jersey which is not exactly next door but it's it's uh down the road basically yeah down the road of a bit mm -hmm. yeah and it, it's fascinating because it's like there was a uh, in 1998 there was a Batman storyline you don't have to read it but it, but there's a Batman storyline called Cataclysm where uh, Gotham City got hit by a major earthquake. And the American government basically is, well, it's Gotham City. There's all this crime. There's all this corruption. We're giving up on this city. Like, they wrote it off, basically. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so this was this, this was the what plunges Batman, of course, into all this, like, ruckus and stuff like that. But the idea, and we just saw this recently with, like, even Detroit just a few years ago, the fact that you can kind of just write off this American city and we're like, well, we tried and right. it didn't work. We still have New York. We have L.A. We're good. Right. So just the idea of Camden yeah. as a metaphor of just like we're just going to write this off and or Youngstown. Right. And we could just write this off. Yeah. And even though there's people there, there's families, there, there's all this thing. Infrastructure, like you said, it's a sacrifice. And it's absurd that America feels comfortable making that kind of sacrifice. Yeah. I mean, it is almost like a, a dark gothic graphic novel, mm -hmm. except it's reality. Yeah. Uh, and that's our reality that we're. We're seeing, and, and, and as Chris Hedges says, you know, if you look at these sacrifice zones, 
you know, your your city, your community could be next. Mm-hmm. These are these are kind of the uh, the early the early signs of the effects of what uh, what we call and what he calls the corporate coup d'état. Mm-hmm. These decisions that lead to sacrifice zones. Uh, what the movie's trying to grapple with is the conflict between unbridled capitalism on one hand and democracy on the other. Mm-hmm. If decisions over economic life were made more democratically, uh, no working class, and whether it's Detroit, Baltimore, Camden, Youngstown, would vote. Yeah, let's send, let's pack up the factory and ship it. You know, there. Uh, so the movie tries to grapple with how uh, corporations have uh, hijacked democracy, and it serves the the one percent, and it hasn't been serving the multiracial working class, poor or middle class. But it's an absence of like the the empathy and the humanity, right? Yeah. Like you're oh. just. It's no almost doubt. like you know what I mean. Like, do I have do I want to have like pizza or, or Chinese for dinner or something? Right? Yeah. It's like it's a cold decision. It's not. There's like no doubt. Uh, but I mean, I see. You can look at the people. I I grew up in Detroit, and uh, you know I, I knew Michael Moore before that first movie. But it's about this. That first movie, Roger and Me, is about General Motors just taking its factories where it had built up a middle class and. Uh, factory workers could send their kids to college and they just destroyed it all because they could go cheaper labor first in the U.S. South, Mm -hmm. which had no unions and the division of black and white workers. And then when that wasn't cheap enough for the corporate elites, they took it to the next country, Mexico. uh, And um, I mean, it is cold. I mean, capitalism is cold. I, I study law and you know, corporation. You study corporate law, and you're supposed to maximize profit. And if you don't, in each quarter, you can get a shareholder suit against you. That's your job as a corporation is to maximize profit. There's no doubt it's cold. You just care about what the next quarter is, and it's been t- completely uh, in the U.S. is more unbridled, unregulated than almost in any uh, advanced industrial country. And in our movie, we're trying to show this is what happens when democracy loses out to 1% cold, mm-hmm. ca- you know, just cold. Who cares about these people? Let's move. We can, get, we can get much cheaper labor in the American South. And then, hey, we can get one-tenth of that labor if we go to Mexico. And, of course, both Democrat. we show in the movie, both the Democratic and Republican Party elites presided over it. And mm-hmm. Bill Clinton uh, pushed NAFTA. Uh, and we've had you know, deregulated Wall Street. Uh, mass incarceration was a result of Democrats and Republicans getting together befi- behind the 1994 crime bill. We see the impact of, uh, on society today of decisions made by government on behalf of the 1% and against the 99. Yeah. Is this in any way sort of a sequel to your previous film, Fred, uh, All Governments Lie? Because that was... The basic premise of that one was that you wanted like adversarial journalism. You wanted media to be on top of things like this. So when these decisions are being made, yeah. we're a better informed republic, basically. And so is this kind of a sequel in some sort of way? Yeah, and, and kind of an expansion of the theme. Um, and Jeff worked on All Governments Lie as well. And All Governments Lie is a famous quote by a legendary, uh, the late great independent journalist I.F. Stone, 
and uh, all through the 50s and 60s, he published a, a little four-page newsletter called I.F. Stones Weekly, mm-hmm. long before you could, you know, have a blog and <laughs> no internet, so how do you reach people? And, you know, he, you could subscribe to I.F. Stones Weekly for five bucks a year when he started it, and he was still doing it when I uh, was uh, a, a teenage would-be investigative journalist and just starting to, you know, think about uh, trying to work for the CBC, which I ended up doing, um, I was subscribing to I.F. Stones Weekly. And, you know, Jeff was reading it back then, too. So, so All Governments Lie is, is a quote by I.F. Stone that is well known to young journalists today who, who want to have a career in independent, non-corporate, non-mainstream journalism. So um, that film was about contrasting what independent journalists like I.F. Stone and those following in his footsteps, what they're doing contrasted with what the corporate mainstream media are doing. And it's like night and day, mm-hmm. you know, and, and particularly when it comes to exposing government deception, particularly in the run-up to a war or an invasion, uh, that's where the, the, the mainstream corporate media, media really show their colors and become cheerleaders. And that happened, you know, in the run-up to uh, when, when, when Johnson, Lyndon Johnson was ramping up the war in Vietnam with this fake uh, Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was, you know, a trumped-up uh, kind of, no pun intended, you can, can't really <laughs> use the word trumped-up anymore no, with I know. without you yeah. know, making it sound like <laughs> you're talking about something else. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, so, and the same thing happened in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq. Where, where the corporate mainstream media also just very uncritical. And so that's what that film was about. And the corporate coup d'etat kind of expands the picture to show how even more all-pervasive is the control of uh, corporate power, corporate elites. Mm-hmm. The, this, the new movie, Corporate Coup d'etat, almost has a direct connection to the movie about the media, All Governments Lie, when we talk about Mussolini, and who, you know, sort of invented corporatism uh, and imposed it on the people of Italy through force and violence Mm -hmm. and jailings. And we talk about in this new movie how in our country, corporatism isn't enforced by violence, state violence, except people of color, protesters, but it's um, it's done by media propaganda and uh, turning everything into a soap opera and a spectacle. And Donald Trump is a guy who you know came to power as a result of his mastery of the spectacle. Mm-hmm. So I think the two movies are really connected. Yeah, I noticed that one of the people in both movies, uh, Matt Taibbi, he has a book came out in 2017, Insane Clown President. Yeah. And there's a great line uh, in it. I'm just going to read it out. And he says on page 100, America is now too dumb for TV news. It's our fault. We in the media have spent decades turning the news into a consumer business that's basically indistinguishable from selling cheeseburgers or video games. You want bigger margins, you just cram the product full of more fat and sugar and violence and wait for the obese, overstimulated customer to come waddling forth. So based on your documentary, the new one now, Corporate... um, is Donald Trump then the heart attack that will force us to change our media diet? Run that by me again, that question. 
based on what you're saying is Donald Trump's the culmination in your documentary you're basically yep. saying that Donald Trump's the culmination of all these decades of uh, Bill Clinton and Obama and all these different people along the way so if, he, if you have a heart attack usually the doctor says to you you have to change your diet you have to exercise right. more you have right. to cut back on right. cheeseburgers right is Trump gonna be you think the heart attack then that'll help us to change our diet and help us to kind of then like eat more broccoli or like get some independent journalism or something like that Definitely, we need more uh, moral fiber in our diet. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, we, we basically show that in the, the corporate coup d'etat that uh, Donald Trump is the logical result of decades of betrayal of working class uh, interests and, 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 you know, the interest uh, of, of helping the most vulnerable, the betrayal of, of that by both established political parties in the United States, the Democrats and the Republicans. And Donald Trump won because he was really running against both parties. Mm -hmm. And uh, particularly people in the Rust Belt area that we visit, we go to Youngstown, Ohio, which used to be called uh, Steel City, USA, and now it's just a scene of devastation, and Rust. Uh, people there had voted Democratic, you know, all their lives, and they're parents and their grandparents had also and so all of the pollsters and the pundits and the consultants to the Clinton campaign thought that well we don't need to worry about them they've always voted democratic well guess what they were tired of being screwed for decades by both parties and when a fast-talking uh, slick con man blew into town uh, talking a good game sounding completely unlike uh, a Washington politician a guy who they had seen on television, on The Apprentice, and sadly they believed what they saw on this stupid reality mm -hmm. show called The Apprentice, uh, where he, of course, was portrayed as a, a brilliant god of business acumen. But that's, again, a subculture of capitalism, right? That yeah. if you're rich, yeah. you must be smart or you must be yeah. like, you're on top so of it, so right? So, so as Chris Hedges says in our film, uh, Donald Trump, is just a symptom of the systemic problem. Mm -hmm. On the issue of, is Donald Trump the heart attack that will get people to change their media diet? Um, I said to one of the audiences at the Hot Docs Festival that the interesting thing about the US is that the most progressive age demographic are people under 30. It's like night and day. Mm -hmm. uh, people under 30 are the most anti-racist, anti-sexist, pro-gay rights, pro let's do something about climate change, let's tax the rich, let's regulate companies on every issue. And they have a different diet of media. Uh, the uh, median age of a Fox News viewer is 71. Um, CNN is something like 68. MSNBC, you know, the, the young people don't get their news from these soap opera type outlets. They're looking for podcasts. They're finding uh, Common Dreams, Truth Out, Truth Dig, that uh, Chris Hedges writes for. The democracy now is booming. Uh, Young Turks, it's not my cup of tea. I, I love Cenk Uger, but it's a web TV thing. And people under 30, I asked students in, when I was teaching journalism, they all watch the Young Turks. Mm -hmm. And so you, are, you hit on something, that part of the reason people under 30 are more progressive is uh, they've turned off mainstream corporate-dominated media, and they're finding some better alternatives.
I have a, I have a lot of jokes. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so yeah, I just want to talk to you about. Um, so introduce yourself and the role that you had in the documentary. My name is Philip Martin. I'm a senior investigative reporter with WGBH uh, Radio and Television in Boston. Mm -hmm. And uh, the role I played in the corporate coup d'état is uh, the role I play uh, every day as a as a reporter. Uh, in this case, I was a reporter working, trying to understand why some Trump voters, those who voted twice for Barack Obama in 2008, 2012, uh, in 2016, voted for Donald Trump. So when you're talking to these people, are you able to separate the politics from the journalism and just kind of sit and actually like listen to them? Or do you ever feel the need to like kind of correct them? That's a great question. And uh, I, I don't feel the need. I think it's really important for me to listen to hear what they have to say. The only time I feel a need to correct anyone is if they're absolutely incorrect uh, it, on a factual point. When uh, we interviewed an African-American minister in Ohio who said that he had understood that each immigrant who comes across the border receives $30,000 each, it was important to correct that. Yes. <laughs> uh, that, of course, <laughs> is nonsense. And, um, uh, but I didn't want to call it nonsense because mm -hmm. that's condescending. But I did want to let him know, and did, uh, that what he, uh, what he stated was just absolutely uh, incorrect. Uh, and uh, uh, if I were to, to say it outside of journalism, I would have said it was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. but, uh, <laughs> but I simply <laughs> called it what it was, uh, yeah. incorrect. And in terms of the people that you talk to, one of the themes of the documentary is this idea of a savior. People are always looking for a savior, right? And that was what was Obama was supposed to be. And now there's a little buyer remorse, too, not just in the documentary, but even in general. Are people still fixated on this idea of a savior and somebody saving? Or are they kind of now slowly realize that maybe it's like up to me to... Like if I'm if I jumped off the ship now I gotta swim. Nobody's coming to rescue me. I think there's a myriad of things happening, but I think one of the the, the predominant thing that's happening, exemplified by the women's march, of of uh, two years ago, January 2017, was that people are in fact motivated to do something on their own. That is to say, aggregately, mm -hmm. uh, not just individually, but individual part of a massive group. And you see this happening across uh, the United States, Canada, for that matter. It's a worldwide movement. Uh, but in the United States, uh, folks feel that it's not just a matter of voting. You also have to organize. You have to take to the streets. You have to join with other people. Uh, journalists realize that our voices are amplified when we, in fact, work with other journalists, that it's not just a question of uh, working on your, cell, on your own and winning an award. But it's, it's necessary to work with other journalists investigatively. Uh, and so in terms of uh, lay people, uh, it's the same thing is absolutely true. Uh, you join as, as women, Black Lives Matter, uh, working people. You see unions on the rise, uh, as we just saw at the Stop and Shop uh, 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 successful uh, food workers uh, after years of being uh, being put down and losing, as they did in Los Angeles in 2003. Massive uh, uh, food workers strike across southern, uh, southern California. They went on strike for almost six months. In the end, they lost. This time, this strike lasted uh, 11 days. Mm -hmm. And what came out of that strike? Victory. And, and, it w and it's astounding. And why victory? Because 75% of people who shopped at these places refused to cross the picket line. 
there's a different consciousness that's, uh, that's occurring right now. That same consciousness is, 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 uh, is true for many journalists. Uh, it's not just a question of he said, she said. Many journalists are trying to are realizing uh, on their own and through, uh, through uh, organizations like FAIR, for example, uh, that uh, you have to, in fact, discern uh, what is objective, but what is also, what is also uh, problematic, <laughs> and, and what is right and what is wrong. And in, in the age of Donald Trump, you find much, a lot more people discerning uh, the, uh, those differences. And you find, uh, to uh, getting back to your question again, you find that people are acting uh, in less, as indiv less individualistically and more in an, in an aggregate and more as a collective, uh, from journalism to stop and shop workers uh, to women uh, to black folk. Uh, to, uh, uh, to immigrants, you find a greater uh, uh, collective uh, uh, response to repression and creeping authoritarianism. And as a journalist and as a human being yourself, then how are you balancing hope as well? Because you just touched upon like covering things that are right, things that are wrong. But how are you balancing hope as well? Because that's also what people need, or some sort of metrics of hope. I, I like you, man. You ask good questions. Thank you. And I think the notion of hope, when you, when you witness hope, you are more hopeful. And when, I, uh, and when, I, when I've seen a lot of hopeful people, even in the, in the midst of this immigration quote-unquote crisis, a crisis born of policy, in politics, uh, uh, you, th it's been exacerbated. The immigration situation at both borders, but particularly in the southern border, has been exacerbated by the policies of the current president. Uh, and uh, and but but it didn't start there. Uh, it, it, the the previous president uh, played a role in <laughs> exacerbating those policies too. But what you see are, are people basically working to improve the conditions of immigrants. What you see with women, people working to improve the conditions of, of women. Me too, I'm inspired by me too. Uh, and we all should be men. Uh, we should be uh, time out, we should be inspired by that. Because it's basically people saying, I'm not gonna take it any longer. Mm -hmm. And we should always be inspired when people say, I'm not going to take it any longer. That is so uh, important. Uh, as someone who grew up in Detroit, a city you'd mentioned, Camden wasn't the only metaphor for disintegration, and, uh, but Detroit for a long time has been. But you also see what's happening in Detroit. People are pushing back, They're taking back their neighborhoods, saying, no, I'm not going to end up in a neighborhood where I'm paying $2,500 for a three-bedroom apartment. But you see pushback against all types of things. And in the, in the final analysis, when other people push back, I'm interviewing those people, I'm hopeful because they have expressed the type of hope uh, that is absolutely contagious. All right. We'll leave it there for you. I, I'll ask him a couple more questions. I know you got to go, thank right? You. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you for a good great. question. Really thank you, no, I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you. I see you soon. Okay. Thank you for your time. Thank you, my friend. Um, yeah, so just a couple more questions, and then we'll wrap up. Is that good? Uh, yeah. Super. Thank you. Super. Uh, so back to you, Fred. Both your docs, uh, we touched already upon uh, All Governments Lie and this one, the corporate coup d'etat. Uh, you've worked uh, in different capacities with Oliver Stone. I think he saw a rough cut of this one. Yes, he did. Yeah. Oliver Stone, obviously, very political and uh, very similar kind of um, 
ideas as you. Yeah. But he t- he chooses to work in fiction uh, mainly. I know he's done some documentary stuff. Yeah. But he some. has. Yeah. But he's mainly known as a fiction uh, director. Is that something you would ever want to do and jump ship instead of doing? Mm. The kind of just like a documentary where you have to be grounded in journalism because fiction you get to write a happy ending. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I I actually had a uh, a fleeting flirtation with the idea of wanting to you know try my hand at uh, being a uh, a screenwriter mm-hmm. uh, writing uh, a dramatic film. Uh, that's when I lived in L.A., which was a good place to be if you're going to do that kind of yeah. thing. Uh, but Go where the action is. Yeah, and where the industry is. Mm-hmm. I I just found when I tried it, it's such a lonely, solitary experience. It's just you and your laptop. I prefer what I do. That That's the screenwriting part. I mean, obviously, then the, the directing is a whole other story where mm-hmm. you're, you're like you're running a small city just about. But anyway, I, I just got that out of my system. I tried writing a screenplay and uh, gave up about halfway through it and just found I wasn't enjoying it. And I, what I like doing is, you know, documentary filmmaking is a very collaborative process, as you can imagine. And I really like that. I like, I like you know, working with the team. And um, so I, I have no desire whatsoever to, to work in fictional film at, at this point. So for magic, it's all about uh, distraction and illusion, right? What you should be paying attention to. Most people are not paying attention to the right hand, the one hand that's kind of like doing all the work. <laughs> and they're trying to follow yeah. where the card went or right. the coin or whatever. Uh, in your documentary, Professor Cornell West, he talks about the struggles of democracy, how it's like you take three steps forward, then you take two steps back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I- it's the same thing. With just like distra- There's a lot of distraction. There's a lot of illusion going on. Is there certain things that you think we should be paying attention to or um, like uh, other kind of like writers or other filmmakers? Or is there certain things that we should be paying attention to where the actual real magic is happening? Yeah, well, for, for, the, for me, the real magic is listening to wise people and reading what I consider wise people and, and, and learning from, you know, the great thinkers uh, who are, you know, they're out there, they're writing books. Uh, and, and that really, you know, made me want to do a documentary that uh, is not a typical documentary, uh, although it does have what I call cinema verite in it. In, in when we visit the Rust Belt, when we visit Camden, w- you're seeing real kind of fly on the wall, you know, what we call run and gun type stuff where you're not controlling the action and, and you don't know what's going to happen, but you're, you're trying to capture a situation. And that's great. A lot of documentaries are, are just that. Uh, this, our documentary was what I call a hybrid of um, cinema verite with uh, what some people call an essay documentary, where, where you're s- basically sketching out a, a, a thesis, mm-hmm. and you're, you're maybe stating your thesis at the beginning of the film, at least indicating it. And then you are giving examples that support your thesis you know, throughout the body of the of the film is yeah. that how the metaphors also kind of develop like because you see so. a lot of actual yeah. things literally crumbling and demolishing and like as yeah you kind of making points so are you as you interview uh colonel west or uh chris hedges as these conversations happen then you're you're starting to see the metaphors and trying to figure out what it is that you want to actually visually show as yeah part of the things just kind of bubble up you know bubble up to to your consciousness especially if you 
have a couple of uh, espressos. <laughs> you know, and that's, that, that's the, the documentary I, the trick. Ideas just flow. Mm-hmm. Um, some some famous writer said that about two or three hundred years ago. <laughs> a couple of cups of coffee and the ideas just flow. Um, but but so yeah, uh, it it um, the, the metaphors you know uh, they can't be forced. You can't sort of sit down and make a list of metaphors or anything. Mm-hmm. I, I they, they they just kind of evolve from the process, and and also it helps to have a great editor who comes up with ideas. And we had James Yates, who's uh, I think he's about twenty seven years old. When I started working with with him on All Governments Lie, he was mm-hmm. twenty five, and uh, you know he's a genius. And so uh, yeah, that, that it's a again proves that it's a collaborative process. And Jeff wants to. Just continuing on what Fred's saying, one of the most creative sequences, it's just beautiful, it's artistic, uh, is the sequence where uh, Chris Hedges has described how Camden was once this bustling industrial city with big, important companies. Campbell Soup. Yeah, so he, he mentions RCA Victor. It's where Caruso recorded. And then you hear Caruso start singing. Mm-hmm. And as he's singing this passionate opera, you watch the demolition of the RCA <laughs> yes. Victor factory and the demolition of the Campbell Soup factory. I, to me, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sequence of real uh, cinematic genius. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm an, I'm an opera fan, and my daughter is an opera singer, so uh, I was thrilled that I was able to work opera <laughs> into this okay. documentary, and it didn't seem forced at all. Yeah. It, it, it fit exactly what Chris Hedges was referring to, and, and you know, to hear the great Caruso uh, singing uh, the mas- most famous um, aria from um, uh, Pagliacci, uh, which is you know tragic and emotional. Uh, I mean, it really suited the scene of this destruct- destruction where you're seeing the the Campbell Soup building being blown up, you know, imploded by a, a professional imploding company, I guess, and uh, and then you see the uh, uh, other factories being blown up. It it, it yeah, it's powerful. Mm-hmm. So I want to close on this one. The documentary ends with the idea of uh, a Chris Hedges mentions doing a lot of reading, kind of getting back, and we've already touched upon that. But he he and uh, both Cornell West uh, kind of touch upon this idea of doing really small gestures and regaining our humanity and kindness. And small gestures almost seems kind of to contrast, like con- especially contrasting to the big moves that the elites are doing and the corporatization and everything like that. And you feel that those small gestures, that regaining of that humanity, will be enough to kind of be a pebble and that will be able to start an avalanche? I, I wouldn't say it will be enough, but um, sometimes, y- you know, you, you need something to give you hope to go on and fight the struggle. And, uh, you know, the... the I mean, two of the key words of the solution are, to, I think, organize, resist. And if people keep it in mind that, you know, it is possible, even when things look hopeless. I mean, look, I'm sure that things looked hopeless to some people, you know, in during World War II. Uh, but but uh, they didn't give up, and they, they kept, you know, and they kept having babies, and they didn't, you know, and they fell in love, and... and life went on and I, I do have faith in human nature even when things appear bleak um, but but it's not just be kind to your fellow man that that is 
that, that is kind of the organizing principle that would lead you to try to organize and resist oppression. Uh, particularly, it might not be your own oppression, but the, when you see the oppression of others, uh, fellow citizens. I mean, things seemed hopeless in the 30s during the Depression. I could things imagine that. seemed hopeless when Hitler is taking one country after another in Europe in the 40s. Things seemed hopeless in my country when the best writers, the best professors, the best journalists could not work in the 1950s during the anti-communist blacklists and witch hunts. So um, what I love about the ending of the corporate coup d'etat is while it talks about the individual taking action and how that could lead. Uh, your question about where's the magic happening, there's magic going on in, uh, in the country I come from, the United States, and the magic is that people that were a year or two ago baristas are running for Congress and winning Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez at age 29, uh, an immigrant uh, from Somalia, Ilhan Omar, uh, you know, is a congresswoman from Minnesota in my city that I grew up in, uh, Rashida Tlaib, a Palestinian-American, uh, elected to Congress. She's as militant as any activist. And so from an activist perspective, if, you know, you're just a lowly activist, you're seeing, wow, I helped elect these people. And after getting elected, they're not forgetting about us. They're coming back to our activist meeting and speaking to, you know, there's something happening. There is magic happening. You wouldn't know it from the corporate mainstream media who are opposed to all these things that are happening. You wouldn't know it from the Democratic Party leadership when young people are pushing the Sunrise Movement are all under like 28. It's the movement for a Green New Deal. And you have Nancy Pelosi, the leader of the Democratic Party, allegedly the progressive party, and she says, oh, the Green Dream or whatever they call it, trying to dismiss all these young activists. But uh, young people in, in my country are not uh, easily turned around. There really is some magic happening politically and socially. All right. And so, Fred, uh, the documentary is playing at Hot Docs. Uh, will it be attending more film festivals, or what are you hoping to happen after that? I'm glad you asked. Yes. I, <laughs> I, I, um, we do have one more screening um, coming up at Hot Docs on May 3rd. Mm -hmm. That's at 12 o'clock at Hart House. We uh, Hot Docs also has uh, a kind of an auxiliary arm that organizes screenings after Hot Docs. I forget what it's called, but um, uh, there will be uh, a screening by that part of Hot Docs uh, sometime in June in Toronto. So um, if you uh, if you go to the Hot Docs website, you, you know I'm sure you'll you'll find reference. It may not be there yet. But there will be a screening. I think it might be June 12th. Also, Cineplex will be showing the film at theaters in Vancouver, Calgary, and Toronto on May 26th. Nice. Good job. And I'm pretty sure that if there's a huge turnout for those screenings, they'll hold it over and you know for a week uh, mm -hmm. if we're lucky. So uh, come on out if, you, if you're in Toronto, Calgary, or Vancouver. Uh, Check which Cineplex the corporate coup d'etat is playing at, and um, for sure, it's you yeah. guys did a really great job. I'm not like thank you so much. Like, yeah, uh, there's a lot of really cool points, and as um, we mentioned, like uh, Chris Hedges is in it, Matt Taibbi is in it, another solid writer as well. Yeah. John Ralston Saul, John Ralston -Saul uh, represent there, get some Canadian yeah. in there. Maud Barlow, uh, yeah, Maud Barlow, great uh, Canadian activist uh, who uh, 
certainly, I think she was the founding director of the Council of Canadians. Um, she's great. Mm -hmm. Just great analysis, really sharp in the film. And by the way, w our aim is uh, to get this uh, to college campuses eventually and have screenings. Uh, the film is also going to air on Super Channel in Canada, which is a pay channel, movie channel, but uh, it, I'm not sure when they're going to run it. Probably uh, not for a few months. And, um, oh, down the road, it'll undoubtedly be on iTunes for rent or purchase. Mm -hmm. So you will get your chance to see it uh, one way or another, uh, and uh, we, we are going to do everything we can to get it out there, including getting it on uh, a, an American network, uh, possibly uh, a movie channel down there. Thanks, gentlemen, for your time. Thanks for hanging out at Hot Docs. I know it's a busy time, so I appreciate you making some time. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank Enjoyed you. it. Yo, that was fresh. My name is Sam Yunin. This has been my summer layer. You can follow me on all the social medias. I am on Facebook and I am on Twitter and I am on Instagram. They're all at my pal Sammy. I've made your life simple. You don't need to wear pants for any of them. Just come on, hang out, um, make some jokes. It's sarcasm. It's fun. Thank you. <laughs>